Welcome to the Security Serengeti. We're your hosts, David Squinger and Matthew Keener. Stop what you're doing and subscribe to our podcast and leave us an awesome five-star review and follow us at SerengetiSec on Twitter. We're here to talk about some recent news headlines and hopefully provide some insight, analysis, and practical application that you can take in the office to help you protect your organization. And as usual, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are ours and ours alone and do not reflect the views or opinions of our employers. Where are the women in cybersecurity? Well, they're in the kitchen. What? They're writing chef scripts. Oh, all right. For our first article for today, which we didn't discuss who's going to do what, but <laughs> we're going to. The first one is per court order, Oasis rewrites the rules for jump crypto to recover stolen web assets from a phenomenal blog called Web3 is Going Great. This blog is just a collection of stories about how Web3 is and DeFi is uh, having interesting troubles, which makes them a super great place to go to for for entertaining stories it's like the register for DeFi. so not a little uh, bit poor not quite as well produced as the register though ouch yeah they're not quite as clever it's a little bit low budget yeah the design is stuck clearly in the 90s 1890s <laughs> uh so for in summary jump crypto obtained a court order requiring the oasis platform to quote upgrade a smart contract in such a way so that jump crypto could recover stolen funds from where the hacker had them and oasis is a front end for the MakerDAO project uh, this is something that traditionally we have always assumed that smart contracts cannot be changed once they're deployed but some projects use upgradable smart contracts which frankly sounds like a good idea at least on the surface right because if you find a bug you know, two years later, three years later, and you can't upgrade the smart contracts, that's a problem. Well, the second you say that that's possible, though, then you have to enter into all sorts of machinations about how it can be upgraded and who approves the upgrade. You know, you get everybody on board with that upgrade. Yeah, because you could just do a rug pull. You could just upgrade all the smart contracts to revert everything back to you. Right, exactly. Or just yeah. add a, a heinous clause in them. Mm hmm yeah, lock everything and then the change. Yeah, just mess with the mess with the liquidity in a whole bunch of ways. So Oasis released a defensive statement. It was only possible due to a previously unknown vulnerability in the design of the admin multisig access. Was that the, was the upgrade only possible, or the the hack was only possible? What what I understood based on the way it was written in the article is that Oasis was defending the fact that they could do this at all by making that statement, but they, it wasn't clear in the blog post. And I meant to actually go down the rabbit hole of review and all the links on the, on the site for this, but I didn't get to that. So, yeah. uh, so there's there, probably there was some nuance here I'm missing. Yeah. There's a little bit of clarity here saying writing that their cooperation and the recovery was only possible due to previously known vulnerability. Huh. Interesting. All right. Well. The stolen funds were from the wormhole bridge exploit back in 2022, about a year ago. Uh, attacker stole 122 wrapped ETH, uh, which was then worth uh, 326 million, and now is just over half that. Uh, we did talk about this back in episode 68. And Jump Crypto plugged the hole with their own funds. I guess the attackers didn't get all of it. Well, they uh, yeah. Well, they didn't get everything that that was there because Jump Crypto was able to backfill. Yeah. yeah. So they had, you know, actually 326 million million around. Uh, I mean, who doesn't? Yeah, right. I could go get that tomorrow. Yeah, I think I have at least 300 in my other pants. 
I mean, if we're counting my Luna. Yeah, I mean, let me go get my Luna and I'll, I'll get that patched up. I've got like a billion Luna. You know, you're getting to, well, you're not going to divide by zero, but you're going to multiply by zero error <laughs> on that one. You know, though, if it ever does go back to anything reasonable, which it is not going to, but I can hope. Oh, that's like Silicon Graphics. So like 20 years ago, well, 30 years ago, Silicon Graphics was huge. They were a, a custom system manufacturer based out of Texas. Wow. And everybody had to have one of these things to do graphics, right? And they were huge. The government had bought, was big into them and everything. And 20 years ago, their stock dropped to 32 cents. They were on the penny market. And I actually had a bunch of friends who used to work for Silicon Graphics. And they were like, oh, this is it. This is the end. Silicon Graphics is going to go under. They're terrible and they should. And then a month later, they got an influx of cash and the stock jumped to $32. Mm. I was like, man, just $1,000 worth of that yeah. stock. And that's a hundred X. Wow. You know, and I wouldn't be on this podcast for you today. You know what though? But real, realistically, even at a hundred X for like, sure. Investing a, a thousand and getting back a hundred thousand is life changing money, but that's not enough to take you off the podcast. Like you would have needed to invest like 10,000 and then you would have gotten a million back. That's still not enough to retire. So mm. well, not the way you live. What the fuck is your ivory back doing? scratchers? So attackers have been, you know, transferring the funds back and forth through the uh, crypto markets. It doesn't appear that they've been able to get the money out, which is frankly a common problem with these sorts of things is getting it into cash. So it looks like Jump was able to get back about 140 million. So that looks like about three quarters. Well, th that's where the corner is. If they got it back 140 million in today's dollars. Yeah, that's about three quarters. But if it was in at the time, then that's like, 40%. Yeah. So I was wondering, you know, which dollar amount, because it didn't state when they got the 140 million back. I assume they got it back recently because of this contract change. So it's probably in today's dollars. So they, so they did get a good chunk of it back then. Yeah. But there's still the lost opportunity costs between then and now that people could have, or they could have taken advantage of since they gave their customers that money. They could have taken I don't know. money they out won't... and done something else with it. Like what? Put it in Luna? Put it in a, put it in Sam Bankman Freed's. Yeah, they could have invested in FTX. <laughs> so, so anyways, that's not, we're not really talking about the wormhole hack in this one. We're talking, we're talking about the fact that smart contracts, apparently like, like, is anybody going to buy into any tokens that have smart contracts going forward? It, you know, what I'm not, I'm not as well versed in the smart contract stuff as you are, but I, I... I was thinking that if basically upgradability is going to be a, a, a standard or default part of smart contracts going forward, then I think that may end up just killing smart contracts. So I think one of the key value propositions for the smart contract is the fact that it is immutable, that it can't be changed. And once you add that in, then there's all sorts of other issues here. I guarantee that if this goes forward and people start doing these smart contracts, there are going to be vulnerabilities in the upgradability that people are going to start taking advantage of and start hacking these contracts too to get around, you know, or to get an advantage or or something like that in the in the in the contract. Yeah, I have mixed feelings. I mean, I already mentioned the whole, you know, if there's a bug and it's not upgradable, that kills the token or whatever is being done with it. But you're right. The if they are upgradable, they're going to have to be very public about how it gets upgraded, all, all the stuff that you already mentioned. Because if it's upgradable and one person can upgrade it, then 
Yeah, that's completely yeah, all untrustworthy. Bets are off then. Yeah, that's like having that's like somebody giving you a dollar with a string attached to it, and they can just yank it back whenever they want. <laughs> back in the nineteen twenties. Yeah. Back when back when it was worth chasing a dollar. No, sorry. I was thinking. I was actually thinking of like those old movies, those old black and white movies, where they yeah, like yeah. a gag, where they'd like you know he'd put it in his pocket and they'd pull it back out of his pocket. Seem to remember. I think you see that, that. In like the Little Rascals or or yeah, uh, yeah. Laurel and Hardy or something like that. Yeah, that's yeah, that's what it feels like. And it's just as funny when it's you know someone else's money being pulled back. It always is. All right. The next article is where are the women in cybersecurity on the dark side? A study suggests. And this comes to us from the register. It's because, of course, that's where they have cookies. I'd be there too if I could. <laughs> no, they have biscuits. You know what? I actually, so speaking of biscuits, uh, I'm going to take us off on a little tangent. There's a there's a biscuit brand you can find over here. I can't remember what it's called. I'm going to have to go find that out. But they are surprisingly tasty. They're like Scottish biscuits. A Scottish butter. They're like shortbread cookies. They are really good. Wait, so you're saying it's a Scottish food that's actually editable. They're called Walkers. Walkers shortbread. They're so good. So I saw them in a world market because that's where I go for my, you know, samples of other places cuisine because I'm so sophisticated. <laughs> you're, so, you're so worldly. <laughs> and I saw I them go there. here and get some exotic food. Oh, Scottish cookies. Mm. Yeah. So I picked up some Scottish cookies and they were delicious. So if anybody's looking for a, uh, anybody's looking for a recommendation for shortbread cookies. <laughs> right. So anyway, Trend Micro. So they re recently published a study in which they claim that at least 30%, if not more, of cybersecurity cyber forum users are women. Interesting claim. A, a claim like that probably requires a pretty fair bit of evidence, huh? Well, we'll get to that. And evidence, you know, you could call it that, I guess. So Trend Micro looked at five English-speaking language cybercrime forums, Sinister, Cracked, Breached, Hack Forums, and the now defunct Raid Forums. Cracked? I thought that was a magazine. They're into they're doing it is cyber crime now. Crazy. Well, I guess they do both. Yeah. Well, you know, out. I'd heard that it was real tough to make a living and make money, you know, doing web publishing. So I guess it makes sense that they turned to turned to a turn to the crime. dark side. So they also looked at five Russian language sites: XSS, which I guess is cross site scripting exploit, BHF, and WWH Club. <laughs> they just have the wildest names. Yeah, I'm sure they all mean something in that world, but uh, well, exploit obviously does, but some of these other ones, I'm not sure. Yeah. But of course, the users on these forums are anonymous. No one's going to put their name on there. You know, mm. it's, they don't build a profile, say, oh, yeah, I'm. I'm sure that if they put out a survey or something, I think that a reasonable number of people would answer accurately. Mm, I suppose so. Yeah. But I don't do know. You I do you do crime? Thinking... Yes or no? <laughs> no. I don't know. It just made me think of, wow, you know, and apparently this was a thing which doesn't make any sense to me at all, but I used to work with guys who would play wow. And they said they, they had a, a, a female tune that they would play and they would just like flirt with guys and guys would give them gold. I'm like, what? It's because guys are dumb. Guys I, are simps. I guess. We're all secretly simps. I'm not giving anybody my gold. Or it's hard to get that. Just seemed ridiculous. But anyway, they used two tools, SEMrush and U-Classifies Gender Analyzer version 5. So I looked up SEMrush and SEMrush is a like a marketing tool, right? How does, I didn't see anything about SEMrush that, although I guess if it's marketing, you have to identify your targets, right? 
I assume that's how it's used. I'm not sure, yeah. but that's what they use in order to, to, to attempt to take what these users post in the forums and classify their, their gender. So according to this analysis in, on the English language sites, 40% were women on the Rus Russian language sites, 42.6% were women. It's very precise. Yeah. And they said, when compared to Stack Overflow, a developer and programming forum, only 12% of the visitors were female. And oh, they analyzed they that with SEMrush. That, all right, that makes sense. That makes more sense. Now, they used the Gender Analyzer version 5, and they trained it on 5,500 blog posts written by women and the same number written by men in order to analyze the language for signs of gender. So they also took a subset of the profiles on the English site Hack Forums and the Russian site XSS, and when they ran it against that subset, 36% of the users at, hacker forums, at Hack Forums were women, and 30% at XSS were for, Forum were women. It just seems to me like a forum actually would be the most meritocratic place since nobody really can tell who you are and you can present as basically anything. Yeah. But I mean, Stack Overflow, there's no reason to hide, you know. Yeah. No, you're right. You it's, got the, it's the same thing. Yeah. It's the same thing. It should be just as meritocratic. Right. But according to Trend Micro, this indicates that the cyber criminal underground is more meritocratic than the white hat world, which is complete bullshit. That doesn't indicate any such thing. If you look at the labor statistics, Deloitte says that large global technology firms employ 25% women in technical roles. The U.S. Census says 27% of STEM workers are women. The U.S. Department of Labor says 27% of STEM workers are women. That's a pretty narrow margin, I think, to say that, you know, they're guessing based on language versus the hard statistics from the labor census, the labor yeah. department and the U.S. census on the numbers. That's only 3%. That's probably well within a margin of error. Yeah, that's, yeah, because they're, they're using an estimated, uh, a way of estimating whether they're men or women. So that definitely seems to fall within the margin of error there. I guess what this actually makes me wonder about is why is Stack Overflow, why is that the outlier? If 27% of U.S. STEM workers are female, why are only 12% of visitors to Stack Overflow female? I would be super interested to see this compared to, you know, technical subreddit or other forums as well, because part of it too, like I've never actually used Stack Overflow, or at least I've never asked a question or responded to a question there. Yeah, I've only used it one time. I mean, I've, I've only I, I ever searched for stuff one on question there. On. Yeah. I've, I've only ever posed one question on there, but it does have a lot of useful information on it for questions that I have. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I'm just saying like there's, there's certain, I, I frankly, I'm kind of afraid to post and ask questions on the internet for fear of people being like, you noob, how did you not see this? It's over here. Oh, so, that happened the first time I asked a question. People on the internet are mean and I just prefer to avoid <laughs> it. Yeah. The, the answer was, you're an idiot. Why didn't you look at the airlog was the answer I got back. Anyway, I think this whole, this whole concept is kind of ridiculous. I mean, what about the other career fields? I mean, only 18% of sanitation workers are women, according to the Bureau of Labor, Labor and Statistics. 24% of teachers are men. 12% of registered nurses are men. And that's based on 24% is from the Department of Education and the 12% of registered nurses is from nurses.org. And where's the outcry over the disparity in those numbers? So there is actually, my wife's a teacher and I've been a teacher. There is actually an outcry about the low numbers of men that are teachers, but it's pretty limited to the profession. It's not like a nationwide conversation. So there, there is some, but again, like you said, it's a little different. Like people talking about the STEM thing 
And I think that's mostly because STEM workers are highly paid and therefore people are upset that the slower percentage are women there versus teachers, which are generally lower paid and for middle paid, middle class paid. So but nobody's that's, too unhappy about that. Yeah, but those are supposed to be really rewarding jobs, right? I will say this, working the time I spent as a teacher was literally the hardest job I have ever had in my life. And it's been one of the, it's been the lowest paid job of my professional career. So there you go. But oh, so rewarding. Nope. Not at all. <laughs> I mean, just to think about the sanitation workers, though, that's actually unbelievably critical. That is the most important job. That is one of the most important jobs People, in the world. They stop, in they the stop collecting anyway. trash, and in a week, this whole place goes to shit. Oh, yeah. I mean, Martin Luther King is dead because of sanitation workers, because he went there because of the strike, because those two guys got killed in the garbage truck in mm. Memphis because they went on strike. So, you know, extremely important job. I thought he was killed um, because of the FBI, but yeah, FBI, oh no, CIA, they, my bad, sure my bad. I don't want to share, I'm not I don't sure share misinformation. They were just trying to blackmail him, right? Well, the FBI was blackmailing him for sure. Yeah. They actually yeah. tried to convince him to kill himself what because of his extramarital affairs. That's um, what I was thinking about. I knew they were involved somehow. Yeah. I mean, all three letter agencies of the government are heinous. So you can just assume that if they're involved, it's bad. <laughs> but, the, the, but they also make a, another quote in here in, in the article says, developers are valued for their skill and experience not necessarily for their gender when it comes to conducting business in the underground. And that is true in all professions, just in the criminal world. I, I've never been anywhere where an organization said, oh, well, we're going to leave this position empty rather than hire a woman for it. Yeah. Every, uh, every place I, I've worked goes out of their way to try and make sure that everything, of course, I've only worked for big companies, large companies, but every company I've ever worked for goes out of their way to try and make sure that things are as even as possible. Yeah. What, what you're looking for is someone who know, who can do the job. Matt and I both know, I, what I would say is probably the best blue teamer I've ever met was a woman. I know who you're talking about. Yeah. She's phenomenal. So, I mean, it's just ridiculous to think that this is a, this is a gender problem, but I will tell you that I have not been on a security team yet that would not rather have the position remain empty than hire a dud. So that I think accounts for this gap in the, in the cybersecurity hiring world where they're saying we're short people. I mean, we're short people because most security teams are actually unwilling to hire unqualified people for the, for the positions they have open, which is you why know, we have this shortage. You it's know, not because there's a gender problem or anything like that or a minority problem. It's because the number of qualified people in cybersecurity is just low. I think that there's, there's two, two actual issues here. Number one is a pipeline issue. We've, we've definitely heard that there are fewer women getting into STEM careers back in college. If you have fewer people getting into the STEM pipeline, then you're going to have fewer people at the other end in the work, in the work, in the actual Force. work, which I think is the problem workforce. Yep. And then the second issue is what you just mentioned. Nobody wants to hire people that aren't skilled because they want people to come in and immediately do the work. And I think that is a potential issue that companies have. I totally understand from their perspective, you know, they're paying a lot of money. Security salaries are, are elevated right now and they want people to come in and make an impact immediately. I do, I do think that this is a mistake we make. We don't hire enough junior folks and then train them ourselves because of that reason. Well, I wouldn't say we, because I think you and I. No, that's fair. Did no, no, you're right. You're well. right. I, I was saying uh, the royal we. The royal we. Yeah. Right. Because really, for and I think this is more important than certifications or anything like that is absolutely yeah. and you and to hire a junior people, I think what you need to do is 
not so much test for skill as aptitude in really junior role. And that's what's missing. And I think that's where people who could be in this role doing great things, you know, don't end up moving into cybersecurity or doing cybersecurity work because of that. Yeah. So what should you do about it when you're hiring? You know, try to figure out if you really do need somebody that can make that immediate impact. If it's a senior role, obviously, but if it's a junior level role, you know, take a look and see if you can train somebody up that, that has that aptitude. Right. And particularly internal people, folks mm, coming over from, yeah. from IT or, or from the help desk even or yeah. something else that are interested and actually have the aptitude to do cybersecurity. You'll have a much better idea of if they have that aptitude or not versus somebody from external where you're trying to figure it out in a couple of interviews. Right. And, and also in your job descriptions, don't put stupid requirements on there for certifications or education. I knew somebody anecdotally several years ago who put a college degree requirement on all of their analysts, senior analysts. Either you could be hired as a junior analyst without a degree, but you couldn't be promoted to a senior analyst with a, without a degree. It was ridiculous. Yep. I would absolutely rather have somebody that worked for four years doing security work than somebody who went to four years for college. Yep. All right. Next article. All right, our next article, the National Cybersecurity Strategy Document, what you need to know. I'm sure this is going to be super interesting. The government has really- Riveting. <laughs> riveting. The government has released the next National Cybersecurity Strategy Document, releasing the version released in 2018. Uh, in five, five years, years ago? That was a surprisingly long time, actually. Stuff moves fast in cybersecurity. Well, they said they've been working on it for a long time, so they probably started the draft in 2019. <laughs> right after the last one. So is this one timely or is it actually several years out of date already? <laughs> well, it, it actually gets more timely the farther in the document you get. That's funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because they started and then they're working their way through. All right. So there's five primary action areas in the document. First, defending critical infrastructure. Has a couple of items here. First is more minimum requirements. They're going to be creating more technical requirements and forcing the departments to meet them. They're going to be using performance-based regulations, which is fine. And they're using existing frameworks, which I like. They're not, this isn't one of those cases of, ah, there's 12 different frameworks here. Let's invent a new framework to combine them all. Uh, now we have 13 frameworks. They're going to update their response plans with a, quote, a unified, coordinated whole of government response, which I thought they already did. Didn't they stand up whole agency like a decade and a half ago? You mean the CISA? Yeah, I thought that was part of their remit. The government's got a dozen cybersecurity agencies now. They actually called out one in here. Oh, what I didn't write it down, but I hadn't heard of it before. It was like the National Director of Cybersecurity or something like that. It's like every other week they're creating a new cybersecurity part of the government. Yeah. The second action area is disruption and dismantling of criminal gangs. They're going to be using private industry to assist them here. A surprise, contractors to the rescue. I'm sure the private military contractors are going to love this one. They're going to, quote, strategically be, are going to be, quote, strategically employing all tools of national power to disrupt adversaries. Yeah, that sounds about as ominous as, you know, we're going to bring a country democracy. <laughs> we're from the government. We're here to help. It is kind of ominous, actually. Like, does that mean they're going to go, if they, if they call a criminal gang an APT, are they going to drop a SEAL team on them? I don't know. I think what they were thinking about mainly for this is what they're already doing with sanctions. Oh, okay. Sanctioning individuals. They're not, they're not uh, talking about kinetic force. They're talking about economic and political. I, I wouldn't put it past them, but I, I think that that's 
because they're already imp- using some of those tools now. I think that's what they're against Korea about. and Iran. Yeah. Well, they got named individuals and named groups on the sanctions list. Oh, like, oh, not you're Conti right. or who was Revol. I can't remember who. There's one of the ransomware gangs. At least one of the ransomware gangs is on our sanctioned list. So paying a ransom to them will, you know, run you afoul of the government. So. Well, and this this actually tracks with what they did with that cryptocurrency miner a couple months ago. The oh, mixer. right, right, right. Yeah. The, uh, yeah. yeah I, I can't man, remember. Me. Yep. No worries. Yeah. All right. Item number three, shape market forces, promoting privacy and security of personal data, except to the government themselves, because they're going to want access to all that data. Yeah. Well, I mean, they're not terribly good at actually doing that either. If you recall the OPM breach <laughs> that released the, the SF-86s for what, 21 million people, I think. And those of you who don't know what SF-86 is, it's the most invasive questionnaire like 200 you've ever pages seen or something. in your life. I'm not sure if it's 200 pages, but they know everything. They ask you everything about everything for you and your family. So it's incredibly invasive. And now the Chinese have it all for 21 million people. So that's awesome. 21 million people filled out SF-86. Wow. Yeah. That's how many people have had cl- had clearances at the time. Wow. All right. I'm sure that number's way higher now. There's only like 350 million in the US. That's kind of a surprise, but. Well, the thing is that, well, let me take yes, a there's historical. There's the 21 historical million, numbers. The 21 million is not everybody who has a clearance, but Ooh. everyone and their family who's on the form. That's fair. That's because fair. you have to yeah. release all the private info or a whole bunch yep. of private information about those individuals too. Well, and you've um, got to put all your friends on there and you've got to put contacts and yeah. So it may not have all the information for them, but yeah, it's spider webs out. Additional market forces shaping they're going to be doing is providing incentives for IoT security via labeling. Yep. I mean, stickers are almost as good as duct tape in fixing problems. Yeah. I don't think most. I don't think most consumers are going to really look at it. I mean, this labeling thing hasn't really helped in terms of reducing obesity. They're like, ooh, look at all the sugar <laughs> in this one. This one tastes great. No, because people are going to look at that and they're going to look at the cost. They're like, hey, this is the same <laughs> thing. It doesn't have the sticker on it, but it's $10 cheaper or it's 50, it's 50% yeah. less expensive. How do expensive. you pronounce this? Wee, 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 Huawei? Huey? I don't know. Huey. <laughs> I got a new Huey router. Time to go log into my classified U.S. job. All right. I promote secure development via legislation so that vendors who develop software can be held liable. This one's interesting. And if you go take a look at Schneier, there are a bunch of people in the comments in the Schneier link, one of whom is calling out, who calls out that determining who's at fault in a complex system is difficult. The example they brought up is if you have an Android phone that's cracked and used in terms of, you know, attacking somebody else, like, is it the, can you find the specific app that was broken into? Like, is it the Android system developer who's at fault? Who exactly is at fault? Uh, another comment calls out who would be at fault for open source software. Like, is there, how do you hold them liable or if you can at all? Well, the government probably just look at the biggest contributor and say, hey, this guy, you know, he contributes every month to this code line. So we'll get him. <laughs> Yeah, people that write open source software are generally very well off. Yeah, they're 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 usually independently wealthy, which is why they have the time to write open source software. Hmm? No, but we've talked about this before, and I think this is an app. Well, I, I sympathize with it. The government implementation with this will be horrible because it absolutely is going to stifle innovation because the way that they would implement it is going to be bad. Because if if they because if they write this you you know, across the board, which is probably what they would do for virtually any software that's produced, then 
there are going to be organizations or individuals who are simply not going to produce software because it's too too risky for them from a liability perspective versus making this more narrowly focused and on actual harm and impact versus saying across the board, this is the way it's going to be. Yeah, th I hope I, like I said, I sympathize with this. I, I understand that, you know, holding software vendors liable for faulty software makes sense. But I think the way that the government would implement this would be horrible. I mean, if you just look back to what we're trying to deal with, with the environment and the impact on that, the this is, that's all really the government's fault to begin with. Because when industrialization happened, the government sided with the industrial side every time when there was harm and impact against regular people. There's an instance, there's a couple of instances, of, for example, where the factories used to sh spew out all this soot and smoke out of their smokestacks. And it used to damage people's clothes who were hanging them out to dry. So they took them to court for the factories to say, hey, you know, this is this is impact, this is harming me by, with all these smokestacks. So what that what they did to to fix that was to raise the height, raise the height of the smokestack, so you couldn't definitively prove who was actually at fault from the soot from the from the the chimneys. Yeah. Just put it higher up into the wind, so it turned into acid rain over in Europe. Right. And and the and judges would continually rule on the side of the industrialists because there's like, well, you can't stifle industry, you know, even if they are causing harm. So the government getting in the side on the software developers, it's the same kind of thing. So it's just going to be done badly. Yeah. Now, so item number four is investing in a resilient future by creating a national cyber workforce and education strategy. Yeah, because they've done such a great job with K through 12. You know, or this also makes me think of the trying to retrain minors in West Virginia, where the classes were like 2% full or something like that. And this hey, runs just into learn the, to code. Yeah, just learn to code. I mean, this runs in the same problem we talked about a minute ago with the other article. Like education is not enough. What they should be doing, what would be more interesting here is if they were paying companies for internships or something. Like, you know, we'll give you as a company $50,000 if you'll, or we'll, we'll cover his salary or her salary if you hire them for a year. And then you basically get a chance to try them out risk-free to the company. And if they're better, then you're like, yeah, we'll hire them in. Or if they're not, then you're like, all right, well, we tried it and it's not working out. Thanks a, little, thanks a bunch. You know, move on to your next role. No, you don't like it? All right. You don't have to like it. <laughs> well, you're talking about the government giving, you know, a company money, which comes from the taxpayer or, That's you know, fair. they print it. So uh, I'm not terribly, terribly big on the idea of the government giving people money. That's fair. I, I just rather think they that... didn't steal it. I, I, I yeah. think a better scenario, rather than saying the government would give somebody $50,000, like you take a tax credit for yeah. the number of internships positions you have in the realm of cybersecurity or something like that. Yeah, I, yeah I, I don't necessarily care or know the right way to do it. I'm just thinking like make it so that it costs very little for the company to do to, to encourage them to do it. Yeah. Well, the problem is that's also encouraging movement into that field when, you know, Maybe in the free market, we don't actually need more cybersecurity people so much as we need more, I don't know, oil rig platform drilling people. I don't know. But the market allocates resources. The government doesn't do that well. So it'd be better if they just stayed out of it altogether. That's fair. And you're right, because I was actually just thinking an unintended consequence of that would be that companies, because they're, they always make wise decisions, what they'd probably do is they'd probably fire their expensive security engineers and then hire a bunch of cheap interns. Yeah, yeah. They, they get they get double their money then because they're getting a tax break. 
and yep. they're paying them less or nothing. So Sounds I, about right. I don't know. Yeah. All right. Well, so I guess I don't have any good ideas there. Next item is, quote, prioritizing cybersecurity R&D for next-gen technologies, such as post-quantum encryption, digital identity solutions, and clean energy infrastructure. That's an interesting choice. Yeah. Well, I mean, everything, you have to take every opportunity you can to fix climate change. So you put it in it every... Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that's what I'm sure that's what the advocates want is they want it and everything. And finally, quote, developing a diverse and robust national cybersecurity workforce. Yeah, because diversity is the root of the problem. I mean, so the the government would be happy when everything is like Noah's Ark. It's two of everything. Actually, I have a funny story about that. I'll tell you at some point. Not, on the, not where it's being recorded, though. <laughs> finally, forge international partnerships. I didn't actually have any notes in here. You added the notes in here because I right. the article that I was reading, actually, they didn't actually even cover this at all. Well, this is, I, I got this quote from the White House's, what did they call it? Their fact sheet. The Biden-Harris administration uh, announces the national cybersecurity strategy. So to quote them, leveraging international coalitions and partnerships among like-minded nations to counter threats to our digital ecosystem through joint preparedness, response, and cost imposition. Cost? Right. And I'm not sure what that meant. I, I, it, it makes me think that they want to increase the cost of something somewhere, but I'm not sure what that is. Maybe what they're insinuating is they're going to increase the cost to attackers to attack? I don't know, but I thought that was an interesting statement. And along those same lines, they had another quote in there, which said, increasing the capacity of our partners to defend themselves against cyber threats in both peacetime and in crisis. So that makes it sound like, hey, we're going to give other countries money for their cybersecurity. It's like, I mean, you know, why do we pay taxes? You know, are we paying taxes so Luxembourg has good cybersecurity? I don't think so. You just might start. Well, I mean, we already have. I mean, look at the foreign aid we give other countries already. Yeah. Billions and billions of dollars every year. So one other thing that I, I saw interesting in here was there would be more reliance on private industry, which is good and bad. But here's a quote. The most capable and best position actors in cyberspace must be better stewards of the digital ecosystem. And just a slightly later in the same paragraph, we must ask more of the most capable and best positioned actors. So that, uh, and that makes sense. I mean, typically speaking, private industry is better at accomplishing a task than the government for most items. But it's interesting. Are they are they talking about private military contractors or contractors? Are they just talking about every company, like adding on to the requirement and regulation load of every company? And the answer is probably a mix of both, I imagine. Yeah, I, I took that to to mean that they're going to to be leaning leaning more on large larger IT organizations, ISPs. Software vendors like Microsoft, AWS, the larger IT firms, they were going to start putting more pressure on them or regulating them more or putting more requirements on them. That's the that's the impression I got from those statements. That's probably, that's probably better than going to the end users and trying to force the end users. If you can get it at the root, like AWS or Microsoft, that's certainly a lot easier. Well, right. I mean, if, if, if you're able to influence Microsoft to make Windows better, mm -hmm. then you've helped a whole lot of more people than... You are for, you know, a subset of users who are using Windows and this other security software or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So why does this matter? Well, depending on where you're working, this may have a huge impact or none at all. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is right now, this is just 
This is just words. There's yeah. no legislation behind any of this. This is just says, this is the, what might you call a GFI from the Biden administration. And, and, and quite frankly, this, this administration is terrible at getting anything done at all. So I'm skeptical that any, any of this stuff will be implemented. Um, no, if they could, if they could frame it as all anti-China, they have a good chance. Oh, that's true. That is a good point. And they, and they do hint at some of that in their language as well. And actually they do mention China, North Korea, Iran, and Russia outright in, or in the, in the paper as well. So yeah, you're absolutely right. If you, basically what you're saying is if you're able to tie this directly into the military industrial complex, then you may get some, some movement behind it. There, there's a reason that I mentioned PMCs twice. Like they are all for <laughs> this because they, I guarantee you, they see some dollar signs. Yeah, I think I'm, well, maybe that's what you need to do is found your own cyber PMC. Ooh, yeah. That actually is not a bad idea, especially with the talk about helping out allies. Maybe you call uh, it a PCC. Private <laughs> cybersecurity contractor. Yeah. Let's get on that. Like that's a, I think that's actually a business idea that's got some, got some legs. Yeah. Well, yeah. And no soul. Uh, they pay you enough. You can buy one of those. I'll keep the one I got. It's not great, but <laughs> I'd rather not have to go out and get a whole new one. But that looks like that's all the articles we have for today. Thank you for joining us and follow us at Serengeti Site on Twitter and subscribe on your favorite podcast app.